Good afternoon and thank you for joining us. My name is Sharika McCarthy and I'd like to welcome you to our webinar, Five Solutions to Common ADHD Social Struggles. Today's webcast is part of CHAD's National Resource Center on ADHD. Ask the Expert series. The NRC is funded by the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention and provides reliable science-based information about current medical research and ADHD management. It's a pleasure to introduce today's expert, Carolyn McGuire. Carolyn McGuire is a personal coach who works with children with ADHD and families who support them. McGuire earned her PCC from the International Coach Federation. As a founder of a new training curriculum designed for the ADD Coaching Academy, she teaches other coaches how to coach children with ADHD. She also completed the clinical training program at Social Thinking. She received a Master's of Education from Lesley University. Her revolutionary coaching program and methodology helps teach executive function skills to children, teenagers, and young adults. Again, we are pleased to welcome Carolyn McGuire. Hello, everyone. Well, I'm so happy to be here. And um, I'll just give you a little information about myself. Um, so that uh, you can uh, just understand more than just the bio. Um, I would say this, I am a mother with ADHD. Um, I have a daughter who's just turned nine who has ADHD. So I'm both an expert and a parent and I understand. Um, I also uh, was the Hollowell Center coach for a number of years and I have a book, While No One Play With Me, coming out in 2018. Um, I work with uh, kids on all kinds of executive function challenges, but one of the biggest is around social. Um, so just to sort of give you a quick overview of executive function, executive functions are the hub of the brain, um, and they are our management systems, and it's a processing uh, way of, of organizing, prioritizing, and managing your information and, and emotions. Um, so here's just a little you know, example of executive function um, that might help you that Michelle Garcia Winner, um, a social thinking expert uses, and I, I like it because it's very practical. The idea is that executive function in action is this. You have to have a goal, know what the goal is, think about the goal, set steps moving toward the goal, and then actually self-regulate your behavior to achieve that goal. And so that's sort of the mindset that I love us to have as we enter this um, presentation, which is that kids would if they could. And so when you're talking about an ADHD child or any child with trouble making and keeping friends, um, executive functions underlie all our social behaviors. They're extremely important. They can be, in some cases, um, something that needs to be developed more. And the child always, I think of them as having the best intention, but they just might not be able to manage that whole process. So number one, um, the idea that your child has trouble making friends. We're going to cover five different uh, common topics for ADHD children. And number one is noticing that your behavior affects other people as a cause for having trouble making friends. Um, 
common behaviors include interrupting, not filtering comments, and then coming off as insensitive, um, a lack of attention to social cues and social expectations, sort of irritating behavior. Um, I have some kids I work with who just continually sort of um, bulldoze their friends until their friends say, hey, that's enough. And that's sort of those irritating behaviors and then the kid not noticing and being able to self-regulate themselves. Um, being too much or too intense. This can apply to teenagers as well, right? Maybe they're, they're too much in terms of emotional and draining or in little kids, their behavior feels overwhelming to the other kids. Um, there's this executive function connection to all of these challenges, and that is this idea of metacognition. So metacognition is this idea that you take a bird's eye view of your situation, you are able to have a realistic assessment of your skills and abilities, and then that you adapt your behavior. Um, and if, you, if you're listening to this, you're probably thinking about some of these self-awareness issues that we face with our kids where they're not as aware of their behavior, where they're not taking that bird's eye view, or where they have sort of an unrealistic self-assessment of their skills and abilities, and here's the big one, effort, right? Their effort in situations. The other executive function connection is attention. And then there's the self-regulation piece, right? You're interrupting, you're not filtering. Often when I work with kids, they'll say to me, I meant to, I thought I needed to stop, but they just didn't self-regulate. And then of course there's the emotional regulation piece, which I think is really not talked about enough. So I'm very much all about the how. You know, parents hear these connections and they think, well, that's great, what do I do? So I'm gonna give you some practical strategies, and you can get these slides, they are available, and the strategies I'm gonna show you are built around this idea of some activities or tools that you can use, but in this case of this friendship chemistry I'm gonna show you, you can actually just ask the questions. You can use this demonstration or this slide, but you can also just ask questions. The idea behind friendship chemistry is to help the child really start to understand the link between their behavior and the outcome. Often when I work with kids with social skills challenges, they say to me, I've done nothing. There's no reason why I should um, be experiencing this. And of course, we don't want them to be left out and we don't want them to be sad, but we also do want them to start to realize their role. So the idea behind friendship chemistry is that every action you take has a reaction and that people then have thoughts about those actions and that those thoughts create a reaction sort of in the onlooker and that those thoughts affect how people treat you. So one of the things you can do is not only go through this exercise with a child or a teenager but also start to ask them questions. What do you think your friend felt when you refused to play anything but, you know, this single video game? What do you think that behavior had an effect on them? What are the signals telling you how your friends feel? And often, just by the way, kids will tell me that there was no signal. 
this is where you're really going to ask questions and remain as objective and calm as you can and really start to ask them fully, well, was there really? This is another tool I have called learning to walk in someone else's shoes. Now, I'm going to show you a picture in a minute. The idea of learning to walk is that people would actually take this and lay it on the ground. This is a formal one. I have a formal mat I'll show you in a minute. The idea is that people, the kid is actually stepping into someone else's shoes. Again, you could take craft paper and have them walk in the circle if they're little. I do even use this with teenagers, by the way. And they do it and they think it's funny and kind of silly. But you can also do this using questions. So I'm going to show you both. So the idea is that we want the child to take someone else's perspective to help them step into someone else's shoes and see their different roles. So this comes up a lot with kids, right? They say they're not going for extra help or they're not going to um, seek out a certain teacher. Well, in a way, often it's a social skills issue because they're afraid or they don't know how or they don't know what to ask or they're shy. Or maybe they're not seeking out social engagement with other kids. Or there might be another problem where their behavior is irritating to other kids. This tool is applicable to all those situations. And then when they stand on the mat, you can ask them questions like, you know, what did it feel like when um, you repeatedly poked your friend? What do you think your friend felt like? What do you notice? If you step into their role, what do you think is something I ask the kids? Now I'm going to show you, this is my daughter, since I didn't want to put a, a kid you know, who's my client in this picture. I'm just showing you this to show you how this works. The idea is that you're stepping into the perspective of walking in their shoes. And therefore, instead of the kid having this sort of um, conversation with you where you sort of tell, tell, tell all the things that have been going on, it makes it less strenuous for you. It makes you able, instead of tell, 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 to actually ask the child questions. In asking them questions, you're going to have them then start to contemplate all of this. It's a great, great method, and you can use this for any dilemma because really part of this sort of disconnect where kids don't get that their behavior affects other people is a, a lack of walking in someone else's shoes. And that's actually what my um, Chad presentation at the 2017 conference is about this year, um, and I hope to entice you to come. The other thing I want to talk about is becoming a social observer. So many times due to executive function challenges and attention issues, kids with ADHD and many kids with social skills challenges don't really stop pause and build awareness of the social cues, the unspoken rules, and what's really going on. So becoming a social observer is key to the development of any new skill. Because what you'll find is when you ask a child to do this, they often haven't really done it. And so a lot of times I know parents will tell me they don't have information, you know, what do kids talk about at lunch, who's sitting with whom, 
Well, this is a way for you to get all that information as well oops, as for them to um, really observe and detect what's going on. So this is my guy, social spy. For older kids, sometimes I'll say social reporter. Um, again, it's, it's something I do with all ages, even adults. The idea behind spy is that you would rehearse with them how they go to school and spy so that they're not found out and are really obvious, but that they are going with a specific mission. How do other people dress? How do they sit? What do they do during lunch? With little ones, I give them a notebook and a spyglass, and I make it really fun, and they love it. And I'll tell you, the learnings from this across all age groups are tremendous because you're actually asking someone to pause and pay attention to a specific set of behaviors. So you want to be specific. You don't want to say, go to school and see what people are doing. You want to be specific to go to school and let's have a good spy on what do people do in the hallway before class. So here's a common uh, challenge in terms of kids making and keeping friends. We have to approach other people. They may not approach us. So the idea behind spy in that case is let's go, let's look in the hallway. Do people approach a group or does the group approach them? I think we already know the answer. But instead of you telling the kid in this instance, now you're going to have the benefit of them gaining that awareness for themselves. And it's very powerful. Um, the next one is your child quickly loses friends. Um, sometimes with the, the executive function challenges, kids' behavior is too much. It's aggravating to peers. Things like um, they won't take turns. They invade people's personal space. They don't notice the signal. Even when, you know, a kid says, okay, that's enough, the, the signals are not even auditory notice. They don't read the room. In other words, they don't take, a, you know, an assessment of what's going on in the situation. And then the other one is limited problem solving. So something that happens for these kids, our kids that are struggling to lose, losing friends, is that they may not have great social problem solving. So that's something you want to develop because the more that's developed, you think about it, any social situation is just a problem to be solved, right? And if you build those skills, you're going to have a wonderful opportunity for any social situation. The connections executive function-wise are, again, metacognition, self-regulation, attention, and emotional regulation. This is a polite pretend. So one thing that comes up with children who quickly and easily lose friends, right, is that sometimes we have to be polite about things. We have to talk about things that don't interest us. We have to sustain ourselves when we are tired and we don't feel like talking. Um, and so this is, again, where you can use this image of the polite pretend, or you can begin to have the discussion. And my encouragement is, rather than just telling the child, you have to do this, 
let's use questions, these coaching questions, to help them reflect on what it is that is going on for them. So, you know, what could you do when you board? Some of that problem solving. Also, um, you know, I often say to kids, why do you think I care about a polite pretend? And they have all manner of funny answers. But the, the idea really is I want them to, again, step into someone else's shoes, right? What happens when your tone is dismissive? What social behaviors are expected? What are the social norms in this situation? What do you think your peers say? You know, I had a, a boy I worked with who would just say to people, I'm bored now, I'm done. And, you know, I've had that happen where kids are bored and they don't engage with their peers or they don't um, engage in a polite pretend at, you know, public events with their parents. This alienates other people, but going back to our friends with chemistry, sometimes they don't realize it does. So the whole idea about a polite pretend is that we start having that discussion and asking again, we can use spy, what are other people doing? Um, you know, at, at the soccer field when they feel done and their mom is still talking, to sort of ask them to step into someone else's shoes. The other big skill that I think will help with kids who quickly lose friends is reading the room. So I've mentioned this concept of reading the room. The idea is that you interpret the expectations and unspoken rules and you decipher the cues and expectations in any environment, right? You enter a space or a conversation and you think about who is your audience? What's going on? Who is it that uh, is in this space? What is it that they're doing? And I have some questions to decode the situation. Um, I would suggest that you ask them to think about the people, the situation, um, the expectations, the unspoken rules. And, you know, the other thing is to ask them what are people's tone of voice, what are their body signals telling me, what are the emotions. The big thing about this is it's a skill that builds over time. But what I find that's really wonderful is as kids begin to become aware that this is even a thing, right, then they might be more open to hearing from you how this plays into the larger social picture. Um, I could speak for an entire day about reading the room, but I would just say this is a key skill, and a lot of kids don't pause to pay attention. Um, number three, your child struggles with conversations. You know, struggling with reciprocal conversations can be cause um, for sort of friendships to fall flat. Um, this can be dominating a conversation, interrupting, not listening and making sort of insensitive comments, um, losing the thread of conversation and misinterpreting what people say. And this really has an impact um, because, you know, part of what we do as human beings is we think about the other person we're speaking with and we sometimes adjust our topic of conversation to what they want to speak about. We have sort of an internal social database and we call up, I always tell kids, I picture like a Google search calling up in our brain, what are those people interested in? What do they like to talk about? Where is this conversation going? What do I know about them and how do I adjust? 
But all this requires some executive function skills, tension, self-regulation, cognitive flexibility we haven't really talked about, meaning you're able to shift. You're not stuck on something. This I find in a lot of um, people with executive function challenges where they just are stuck sort of on a topic or on a particular um, way of being in a conversation and then they don't shift out of it and it makes a bad impression. Emotional regulation and again that metacognition, that bird's eye view. So I have a, a really sort of simple tool here about this um, reciprocal conversations and it's called who is your audience and you know if you think about it when you have a conversation what you're really doing is thinking about who am I talking to and what do I know about them what level of information should I give right how how close am I to them how intimate am I how will this information be received based on what I know about them so again you can use this slide, but you can also just use questions. So when you overhear something or you're having a conversation or you are witnessing your child struggle with this, rather than telling them, you know, about how they barraged the person or how they didn't switch topics or how they don't think about the level of intimacy, use questions. Ask the child, what information did you need to give? Why did that person need to know that information? What do they care about? And a little code between you could be who is your audience, right? That you use that as sort of a shortcut to talk about these things. Um, here's some other questions about who is your audience. What, what facial expressions, eyes, speech, tone are we seeing from our audience? What's their level of interest in this? What is my role with the speaker? What is my role as a listener? Um, the idea here is that you will begin to ask the child um, these questions and begin to think about it. Monologuing and interrupting. This is a big one where uh, ADHD kids, adults, young people get stuck. And the idea is that we want to give them an opportunity to um, Learn about the self-regulation behind monologuing and interrupting, right? One thing you want to think about is identifying triggers. So a trigger is a deep emotional reaction to something. My idea really here sometimes is that there might be an obsession, a deep interest, um, something they're emotional about in the conversation. The more we can help the child be aware of what went on before, what were you feeling before you interrupted so much? That will help them really become better self-regulators. The other thing is helping them to look at why are you sharing certain stories? And I call it the 10-second story. And the idea is to engage in conversations with them where you practice telling a story that covers who, what, when, where, why, right? Because sometimes a story is thrown on. Um, it's sort of called this empty chair syndrome, where the idea is that when someone monologues, they could be talking to an empty chair. You could literally role play with the child where you put an empty chair and say to them, you know, when you monologue, who's there? And sort of role play that out with them. The other thing is, a lot of times, if you are helping the child work on 
these behaviors rather than everything under the sun, they're going to get better at it. So that's where I use, again, this concept of mission, that this is their mission. They're working on this behavior as they enter a social situation, not every behavior. Um, have them practice having conversations and giving them some space. Um, let them feel that it's okay to give this pause. It's two beats. Role play that with them because often um, kids tell me that they can't pause because it's just too awkward. So we demonstrate and we go through that and then they learn that no, it's okay. This is a great fun thing. It's called building on that. And the idea behind this particular exercise is that you would take marbles, Jenga, ping pong, and you'll talk about a topic. And every time you go back and forth in the building on it mode of adding a thought to reciprocal conversation, you'll put a new Jenga piece on or a block or add a marble to the jar. If they get off topic, then you're one of your signals to them is you're not adding any Jenga pieces. I also really, really suggest you use this with topics they're not as comfortable with. We all have favorite things to talk about. But one of the big social skills in life is to talk about things you're not interested in or you need to talk about to do a polite present. So for instance, I am a person who really doesn't watch sports, but I spend half my life in these conversations talking about sports because it's something that is sort of a universal language. There might be another topic that your kid knows other kids are talking about, but they don't like to. Practice that topic so you can build on it. Um, this is another big one that really derails kids socially, which is your child overreacts to situations. They struggle with self-regulation here, both physically and emotionally. Um, and they might be lashing out at friends when they're upset. They might be overreacting. In other words, their reaction is very large to a very small thing. They might be melting down. Sometimes our kids melt down um, and have tantrums when their peers are no longer having those tantrums in public. And that can cause some social stigma. Um, this they're not able to name and tame emotions. And by that, I mean they're not able to identify their emotional state and sort of um, down-regulate, process, enact a strategy. And often what happens because of executive function lag is that other kids of their same age peers are able to do that, and they're not, and therefore it's getting in the way. Um, and then this one we've all had happen to us. A kid walks through the door from the bus. You say, how are you? They say fine, and then they have a big emotional reaction to something small because that underlying upset or anxiety had been building up in them all day. Um, and the executive function connection to this is self-regulation, emotional regulation. Again, that cognitive flexibility, the ability to process something and then actually shift from it, and then metacognition. The self-awareness piece, right? So here's something that um, I call taming impulsivity. And this is just one piece of it. But the idea is that we help the child learn to pay attention to those body signals. Uh, there's a wonderful tool called the zone of regulation um, that allows the child to look at 
their self-regulation and actually color code self-regulation to each zone. Uh, there's another tool called Five to Make You Lose Control where you literally use a rating scale and ask the child, what makes you lose control? What's a five? What makes you lose it? The idea behind taming impulsivity is that we become more aware of how do you feel across your day. And you can literally draw their schedule and ask them, what did you feel like in each part of your day? What you'll probably find that's really illuminating is that in some cases, the kids that I work with spend most of their day feeling um, on the verge of losing self-control. They're really trying to manage their emotions, um, and they really are upset a lot of the day, or they're bored and sort of agitated, and then that comes out in sort of behaviors that aren't as socially acceptable. Um, so I use this graph. I talk about all these pieces and processes, and I talk about the point where we want you to be aware of your body signals, aware you're losing control, and, and pause and use strategies. Um, this is a longer-term goal. It does not happen overnight. But you asking questions like, what happened before? How big is your, your reaction? What did you feel like in your body? What are the places and times that you sort of start to lose control? Those are really important questions. Um, this is a, a graph I use called how, uh, how Calm Am I? And it's a five-point scale. And this is something you can use. You can post it in your kitchen. Some parents even laminate it and carry it in the car. And the idea is for any age group that there's degrees of sort of calm, right? And that when you become dysregulated and lose control emotionally, you kind of start as a one in calm, and then by the time you're a three, you're getting more emotional. Then at four, you're losing control. And then at five, you're sort of over the top upset. You've, you've lost control. The idea here is that you would talk through that process and then also start to ask the child questions. When you notice that they're sort of getting grumpy, getting really upset, ask them, where are you? Where are you in the calm scale? And use that information to help them pinpoint what's going on in their body. Good winner, good loser is a fun, easy thing to help teach emotional and self-regulation. Some people struggle when they play a board game or a game with friends with being too much or having too big a reaction, whether it's that they're winning or losing. The idea is that you talk about this with a child or teenager, you demonstrate and sort of talk about what reactions are too much, both winning and losing, and you ask them what reaction is expected. And then you play a game. And with my little ones, it's easier because I can actually beat them and I sort of bait them. And I, I actually try to win and see if they can, if they're reacting, and then we try to learn how to manage that reaction. It's tougher for me to beat some of the teenagers I work with in the game. But the idea really is that I am trying to help them witness and see their overreaction. And the more games you play, the more they're going to learn how they feel and what they can do before that overreaction. And you're going to be able to build strategies. Um, your child isn't always reliable is the fifth one. And the idea here is that 
you know, sometimes kids get a bad reputation because of their academic struggles. Sometimes they don't follow through. They don't text friends. They don't initiate play dates. They don't initiate hanging out with friends. Um, the other thing is that social avoidance is a sign. It's often a sign that the child doesn't know how to create positive social behavior. Um, the other thing is that sometimes kids have unique interests, and they'll say to me, well, I really prefer to just be doing X. But the problem with that is maybe you prefer to only be playing video games or one specific video game. But to have friends, you have to adjust and adapt. That's something that is, is easier said than done, right? So one of the things we want to do is, again, ask them to step into someone else's shoes. If you say so-and-so doesn't invite you or you feel left out, what are you doing to adapt? The Executive Function Connection is organizations. It's looking forward, future thinking, being able to organize yourself, cognitive flexibility, and working memory, meaning your ability to call up information and manipulate it and remember it. I think the sense of time is also really important to me because sometimes um, our kids' lack of future thinking means that they don't always think ahead. So my big solution for this one is this social problem solving. Um, the idea is that we're trying to build into someone else's perspective and we're trying to problem solve together. Okay, what's, what's the situation? It's a problem. Any social situation is just a problem to be solved. What actions can you take? What do other people think? Um, what can you do next time? What are your choices? These are all questions to promote problem solving. And I have a few more here that might be helpful. Um, what gets in the way of you making friends? Um, then also asking them what their role is. What do they think they could be doing? This is where spy can also come back in. What are other people doing? Nothing, nothing different than me is the often the reply I get. But that's actually not usually the case and not usually true. So I might send one of the teenagers even to spy and come back with information. Because sometimes part of this um, child not being reliable, child not reaching out piece, is a lack of understanding on their part, that metacognition, what are your skills and abilities, and a lack of understanding about the effort other people are actually putting forward to make friends and keep friends. Um, and sort of also I find, you know, around 6th, 7th, 8th grade, things shift. The parent is no longer as involved, and the child is actually taking over the social arrangement. And in our case, that executive function piece really is important because sometimes they're not taking over. And sometimes they don't even realize that this shift has occurred. So again, bring spy back in and let's ask them to think about what their role is and what other kids are doing. Um, this slide is really just about some different places to find tools. Um, I listed my Pinterest page. Uh, also, if you go to my website, I have some things there. And then um, I mentioned the Zones of Regulation by Leah Kuypers. Five Can Make You Lose Control by Carrie Dunn-Buron is wonderful. 
Um, the Creative Therapy Store has a slide rule. It's not just little, it's right, and it's also a game. Um, social Thinking Books by Michelle Garcia Winner, as well as Social Skills Training by Jed Baker. Very straightforward exercises you can do to build social skills. And then this is my information. Feel free to reach out to me. And I'm happy to help connect you with social skills coaches. Um, I know sometimes that um, that is a struggle, and that's actually why I've written the book to help parents uh, learn to be social skills coaches because I know you're on the front lines and you are managing things. Um, I am happy to take any questions now. Thank you so much. So our first question is, what can you do to encourage social risk-taking? That's a good one. I think one of the things that comes up is that when kids don't take social risks, it's often because they are worried about the consequence, but also that they don't know how. So I'll go back to questions. Ask them what feels hard about that. You know, that's a great question for academics and social. What's hard about that? What does it feel like for you when I say that? Trying to create that intimate discussion with the child and to ask them questions and have them reflect on what makes it hard. I also think that this goes back to sort of these um, tools about stepping in someone else's shoes. I think sometimes they don't realize um their role and why it's necessary sometimes to actually be the one who reaches out versus waiting for people to come to you. Okay, thank you. Our next question is, if I notice my child on a play date is displaying some of these negative social skills, do I just jump in? Oh, that's a good one. It's it's interesting. Um, in my book and when I've talked about playdates um, in general, I always say, no, this is hard. This is so hard. This is where I think the pre-playdate process is really important, where you're practicing skills and working on the child's intention and mission before they go in, but also thinking of the playdate rather than that it has to be perfect, thinking of it as they don't want to be shamed and embarrassed in front of their friends, and they, we need to see what they know and help them learn things on their own. So the idea is that you would have sort of a debriefing process afterwards. Compliment on what they've done well, because they might have devolved in some, to some behaviors that were, were not as desirable, but they might have done some good things. So compliment those. And then again, let's use our questions and ask them, you know, what do you think went well and where do you think things were challenging? And then also to have them look at those behaviors that made you want to jump in and ask them the simple question, friendship chemistry. What do you think your friend felt like? What's the socially expected role? And really work on that with them so that we're working on the behavior, and then the play date is like our field of practice. Thank you. So our next question is, if my child is not aware 
or in denial about their struggles with social skills? How do I begin that conversation? That's a good one. I think a lot of parents ask that. Um, one of the things I would say is you have to pick the right moment. You don't want to do it maybe when they're feeling tender or when something has occurred. And there's a few ways to enter the conversation. You know, one is to talk to them about this idea of everybody needs to ask for help and everybody's working on something. And to point to situations, and sometimes we need to stack the deck a little bit by, you know, before you have this conversation, starting to point out what places where you have a go-to person or you're calling a plumber or you're going for help. And then I would say to start to have the conversation where you refer to yourself and how you sometimes go for help and then asking them, what is it that they would like to change? And where do they think they're more successful socially? Talk about their strengths. Talk about things they're good at. And then talk about other times when we're working on something and what it is that they could um, do with you to partner to work on the social skills. That's an excellent question. I think that's the hardest one. But my big, big advice is pick your moment. Don't do it when you're angry or it's the heat of the moment or right after a play date or a social event that hasn't gone well. Thank you so much. That was a great question. The next question is, if I have two children and only one has ADHD, how do I explain explosions to the sibling? That's a good one, too, because, you know, often uh, in a family system, um, there's, you know, a misunderstanding. I think this is where we do, again, want to go back to everyone is working on something. And I would actually explain um, the unique brain wiring and what goes on. And I would make sure that the child without ADHD understands that the child with ADHD doesn't intend to do this. I would give them space and distance if they need it. You know, if they need to have a plan for when this is going on um, so that they can get their work done, so that they can be at peace, that's totally legit. I also think that, you know, we want to frame this up not as you're the good one and the other child with ADHD is the bad one. We want to frame it up as everyone's working on something, and this is something that they're working on. Their emotions get too big, and they have this overreaction, and we're working on it, just like you're working on and fill in the blank, and to really sort of give them that safe space but also not villainize um, the behavior of the ADHD child and ask for their help and, and, you know, if there's certain things that they're doing. I know many times I've had to have this conversation with siblings that will make the tantrum worse, you know, asking for their partnership to not do those things and telling them that you're expecting that. Thank you. And our last question is, if all these issues are a problem with my child, where do I begin? Oh, I love that question. Here's what I would say. I would begin with the material from slide one with social spy, with the awareness that there is a problem, with the awareness that there are social expectations and social unspoken rules. 
start with that very awareness of your role and the rest of society's role and how we interact. I would also start with having that conversation we talked about so that you are partnering together um, so that it's okay, so that they understand that everyone is working on something. And I would also sort of start with your mindset that they would if they could, right? And that we're, rather than being angry, and I know it's frustrating sometimes um, to think about the fact that most children I talk to ever, hundreds and hundreds of children that I've talked to, most of them tell me that they want to change their social outcome, but they don't know how. So I would start by asking them those questions we've talked about and really with that social spy so that they can witness and detect their role versus other kids' roles um, and become more aware of these unspoken rules and sort of social norms that um, they may have trouble paying attention to. And, and that's okay. It's okay to say you have trouble as long as we're working on it. Thank you, Carolyn McGuire, for a wonderful presentation and to you, our participants, for taking time to join us today. 